It is good to be together on the 4th of July. It's good to reflect together on how much we love our freedoms and the delicate structures that protect them. In the past year, we have observed with deep fear just how fragile they are, as we did on January 6th when a mob broke into the Capitol, beat its police, and searched the halls for lawmakers who had displeased them, from Nancy Pelosi to Mike Pence. As we do now, when so many in power dismiss the insurrection as a trivial matter. As we do when the same powerful people try to replace history with myth in the name of democracy as we do when we wait with no real hope for the verdict of a white police officer's murder of a black man. As we do every week, every day, we notice how precious, how fragile, how tenuous democracy is. Is democracy coming to the USA? One of the most important things we can do to bring democracy is to realize that it needs to be brought, that it is still to come, that it is of the future. Jason Stanley, who writes about propaganda and fascism, tells us that fascism thrives on a myth of past glories. It frequently is a myth. And fascists don't care that it's a myth and not real history. The shining past when girls were girls and men were men, as Archie Bunker sang, when the best people were in charge and these pesky minorities, immigrants, indigenous people weren't even in the picture. Fascism thrives on a vision of a mythical time when, in another scholar's words, those of Michael Kimmel, men believed they could simply take their places among the nation's elite simply by working hard and applying themselves. Alas, such a world never existed. Economic elites have always managed to reproduce themselves despite the ideals of a meritocracy, but that hasn't stopped men from believing it. It is the American dream. And Timothy, uh, and uh, Stanley adds, promulgating a mythical hierarchical past works to create unreasonable expectations. When these expectations are not met, it feels like victimhood. When we don't promote the myth of a glorious past, we can see today's problems not as disastrous tumbles from our former heights, Eden lost, but as challenges to be met. We can see the future as something we are building, something we are growing, something that is still coming. I want to share with you a story that I was told when I was a little girl, a story that has been told through many, many generations, especially in Jewish communities. 
it's the story of one of the rabbis, Rabbi Joshua of the Talmudic era, who had a vision of the prophet Elijah. The prophet Elijah is said to be the figure who will herald the Messiah. He will say the Messiah is coming. And when the Messiah has come, all will be well. There will be peace, harmony, justice, equality for everybody. The earth will be green, the air will be sweet, and people will love one another as they are meant to do. The messianic era, heralded by Elijah. Well, Rabbi Joshua saw Elijah and it got him very excited about the possibility that the Messiah was going to come. He said, can I see the Messiah? Where is he? And the prophet said, oh, you can see him. He's sitting at the gates of the city the gates of Rome. He sits there, a beggar, among all the other beggars. They sit by the gates, hoping that people will throw them a few coins, and as they wait, they unwrap their bandages and tend their wounds, clean their bandages and put them back on. And he does it too, the Messiah. But you can tell him from all the other beggars in this way, Elijah said. You'll be able to tell him because the other beggars might take off all their bandages and clean themselves up and then put their bandages back on. Not the Messiah. He wants to be ready to go whenever it's the time. So he takes off one bandage, takes care of his wound, puts that bandage back on, and moves on to the next. Go. You'll see. Rabbi Joshua wasted no time. He hurried down to the gates of the great city and saw the beggars there, as he always had when he passed through the gates, and he saw the one. He looked just like all the others, but he was unwrapping just one bandage at a time. And he said, Blessed one, the Messiah, when will you come? The Messiah said to him, Today! Rabbi Joshua was filled with joy. He thanked him and blessed him, and he ran back to his home. And he took care of his home, and he ate and rested and prayed. And the day wore on, and he laid in his bed wondering, when will it happen? When will it happen? And he fell asleep. And in the morning, things seemed to be just the same. He said, Elijah, Elijah, what has happened? And Elijah reappeared to him. Rabbi Joshua said, I went to see the Messiah, and he was there, just as you said, and he said he would come today. But that day has passed, and he's not here, is he? Elijah said, you misunderstood him. He was quoting. He was quoting the passage in the Bible that says, today, I come, if only you will listen to my voice. If you scratch out Messiah and write in democracy, that dream that we long to see become reality, the story works. Democracy is ready and waiting, and it will come when we listen when we make the way ready. What does it mean to listen to the voice of the Messiah? I mean, democracy. 
which waits for us to invite it in, bring it about. What does it mean? Well, voting is a big part of it. As the actor Samuel Jackson says to other African Americans and those who are find that their votes are suppressed, if your vote didn't matter, they wouldn't try so hard to take it from you. But the ways that we bring democracy extend far, far beyond voting. They are often small in scale, creating communities, having conversations. We bring democracy closer every time in Leonard Cohen's words, we sit bitchin' in that kitchen. If it makes us realize that it's time for someone to serve who had mostly eaten before. If it's time for someone to eat who had only been allowed to serve. As Langston Hughes wrote, I too sing America. I am the darker brother. They send me to eat in the kitchen when company comes. But he says, this will not last. I too am America. America keeps growing. That's what happens if democracy comes, if we bring it. It gets bigger. It gets more inclusive, more expansive. We knock down walls and we build new ones farther out and farther. And when there still isn't room for all our ideas, all our ways of life, all our people, we knock down those once new ones and draw the circle wider, wider, wider. So we are bringing democracy in many, many ways, large and small, in actions connected to voting and the political process and actions far from these. When you reach out to someone who shares your goals and brings in new perspectives and says, how can I work with you? How can I support what you are doing as we will be doing with our Green Sanctuary recommitting? That's bringing democracy. When you write postcards to dozens of people, telling them the date of their rural electricity board's next meeting, sending them the Zoom link as Reclaim Our Vote has been helping us to do, that's bringing democracy. Together we write not dozens but thousands and most of the people who showed up at the meeting learned about it from Reclaim Our Vote. When you learn more about how to think and teach others that's bringing democracy. When you look around a meeting and realize that what we're deciding affects people who aren't represented here and say, let's get their representatives to the table before we make up our minds, that's bringing democracy. When you learn more about how to listen and listen to people whose experiences differ from yours, you're bringing democracy. When you read the news, when you help plan a community event or attend one, when you tutor children or adults and learn for yourself that all the narrative that tells you that certain groups of people are inherently unintelligent is false, false lies. When you focus on what you love in our country, in our world, in your community, and want to cultivate, support, encourage, and promote it, you are helping bring democracy. 
As our speakers next week, coming to us via the WHERE lecture, Desmond Mead and Stacey Abrams, will remind us, we have to know not only what we're fighting against, but what we're fighting for. What are we moving towards? Not just what makes us angry, but more, what do we love? And moving toward that love. That will bring democracy. So each of these positive actions that I've just listed and many, many, many more pushes back the dangers of which were warned in two small and shrewd books, Jason Stanley's How Fascism Works that I quoted a moment ago and Timothy Snyder's On Tyranny. Snyder advises us to support paid newspapers and magazines which empower journalists to investigate inconvenient truths. Stanley warns that fascism thrives on the denial of reality, which is unraveled when we listen to others' experiences, when we make room at the table for everyone affected by a decision. Stanley tells us that fascism is anti-intellectual and that each time we learn how to learn, how each time we learn better how to think, we make it less welcome in our communities. If you want information about these books and a couple other resources for remembering what we're against and what we're for, scroll to the bottom of today's order of service before you leave today. Now, when I heard that story about the Messiah when I was young, I was discouraged. See, I longed for that messianic time with all my heart. I dreamed that maybe it would happen in my lifetime. And I looked around the world and I could tell that very few of us were going to listen to the Messiah's voice. I was trying. Maybe I was doing it. But I could see that so many people, including powerful people, including the people running my country and running so many other countries and making so many of the decisions, they weren't listening. So what did that mean? Did that mean the Messiah would never come? And then as I grew, I grew into hope. I realized we don't all need to be listening. We don't need everyone to bring the world we dream about, unless we want perfection. But we don't need perfection. We don't need a savior. What the Messiah was saying in that story was, it's not I who will make the better world. It is you. It is you. As the poet June Jordan said when she imagined the voices of unimaginably brave South African women, we are the ones we have been waiting for. We, us, this is democracy. It is made up of people, not one savior, as in a monarchy, a benevolent dictatorship, us. Us, as many of us as care and work and listen. If you want to see something about how it works, how democracy works, 
Take a peek with me into the poem that we heard, the song Democracy by Leonard Cohen. He wrote about 60 verses for that short song. He wrote, he revised, he discarded. Some were too angry, he said. I wanted a revelation in the heart rather than a confrontation. Some just weren't the angle he decided to take. He said, there are about three or four parallel songs in the material that I've got. I saw that the song could develop in about three or four different ways and there actually exist about three or four versions of democracy. The one I chose seemed to be the one that I could sing at that moment. I addressed almost everything that was going on in America. This was when the Berlin Wall came down and everyone was saying democracy is coming to the East and I was like that gloomy fellow who always turns up at a party to ruin the orgy or something. I said, I don't think it's going to happen that way. I don't think this is such a good idea. I think a lot of suffering will be the consequence of this wall coming down. But then I asked myself, where is democracy really coming? And it was the USA. Now, clearly he doesn't mean because of our glorious past, which never was, but because of the hard places, as we heard in that beautiful video, the sorrow in the street, the holy places where the races meet, from the wars against disorder, from the sirens night and day, from the fires of the homeless, from the ashes of the gay. Listen with me a little more to what Cohen said about songwriting and imagine he is talking about creating a country. The thing is that before I can discard the verse, I have to write it. Even if it's bad, those two happen to be good that he had just presented. I'm presenting the best of my discarded work, but even the bad ones took as long to write as the good ones. As someone once observed, it's just as hard to write a bad novel as a good novel. It's just as hard to write a bad verse as a good verse. I can't discard a verse before it is written because it is the writing of the verse that produces whatever delights or interests or facets that are going to catch the light. You can't discover that in the, in the raw. The cutting of the gem has to be finished before you can see whether it shines. Democracy is like his songwriting process, an experiment in a laboratory, the laboratory being our lives. Done a hundred times wrong, for every positive outcome. Wrong is in quotes there, because that's not really what experiments are about. Although many wrongs are done along the way as you create a democracy. Many have been done and many more will be done. No, I mean, experiments are like the cutting of a gem. It's difficult, tedious work that gradually produces light. If you're hoping for a particular result and your experiment gives a different one, you may casually call that failure, but it isn't failure. 
You learn just as much about the world as you would have learned from what you hoped would happen. If you contaminate your sample or accidentally muddle the differences between the control with the subject, it's not a failed experiment. Frustrating, sure, but you make a note and you do it more carefully the next time, having learned more. Science is an approach to the truth, and everything we learn brings us closer to the truth, brings the truth closer to us, where we wait and work and hope. There are two ways an experiment can be a failure. One, is if we never try it. And the other is if we don't learn from it. Before we can discard the verse, we have to write it. And then we have to listen to what we've written. The way we have to face painful disillusioning facts about our history, about our country, about even the things we thought we were doing right that, that were wrong, that were wrongs, that hurt people. And we say, bad verse. I'm gonna put that one aside. I'm not gonna do that again. I'm gonna write some more. That's what we do about the past and no doubt people a generation from now, if they read this sermon, which I doubt they will, will shake their heads at what we were missing. I hope so. I hope that in 20, 30 years, our people have learned something that we haven't thought of, that, that is all around us already, but that I haven't grasped. Even more exciting is when each of us personally learns something now that we hadn't thought of 10 years ago or 20. It's exciting, but it's hard. It's hard to say, I was wrong. That's a bad verse. I want to put that one aside, even though I thought it was great at the time. Maybe that's why democracy changes so slowly. We are loath to let go of our earlier understandings. Even if, like children, they can't take their own shape unless we do. What if with every birthday, our own and the country's, we celebrated letting go of something that we used to believe but no longer do, celebrated it? If we praised the past for bringing us here and released it? so that we could move forward. Because the people of the past, to the extent that they created our democracy, they did so by looking forward. And we will create more of it, not by doing exactly what they did, but by looking forward as they tried to do in their flawed, incomplete ways. You know, we have a birthday coming up here at UUCPA. Next April, we celebrate our 75th anniversary. We'll be looking back in order to look forward, to honor the people who founded this congregation and brought it up to this point by promising their, their memory, ourselves, that the UUCPA of 70 years from now, 
75 years from now, will be more than they dreamed, more than we can dream right now. That's how we honor the past. That's how we learn from the past. And that's what this anniversary is for, too. Today's anniversary, the day we call the birthday of the United States. 245 years ago, our forefathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, shutting out our foremothers and telling them to bring in food from the kitchen for the busy men, as if women had nothing to do with the bringing forth of new life saying that the native, the black among and around them had no part in birthing this new nation. But now we know that they were four parents too. Hardly dreaming they were that the Asian, the gay, the trans would be essential to our democracy. But now we know that they were four parents too, our past and our present and our future. We celebrate not only the people whose faces are on the money and whose statues are at the state house, but everyone who has ever voted, who, who, who has ever tried to vote and been turned away, whoever declined to vote because terrorists in white robes and behind desks promised that if they tried it, they would pay with their lives. We celebrate everyone who's taught the lion dance to the teenagers, who's driven the old man across the street to the doctor, who has come to a PTA meeting, who has baked cookies for the quinceanera, because they are bringing democracy. They're bringing democracy to all of us. So let's each celebrate this birthday, July 4th, 2021, by doing one more thing to bring democracy than we are already doing. Choose one and act for the future, for the land and the people that we love. We've written this great unfinished symphony as the Alexander Hamilton of the musical calls it, and we've rewritten it revised and expanded it, made wise and foolish changes to it, and we're still playing it. It's still beautiful, and it still has ugly passages. It's still unfinished. It is still in need of our voices, all of them. All of them. <laughs>